Hey there, this is Hunt Gather Talk, the podcast for hunter, angler, gardener, cook, and I am Hank Shaw, your host. Today, we're going to talk about beer. Beer is a much beloved topic of mine, and interestingly enough, of all of the things I do, beer brewing until very recently has not been one of them. That has now changed. And so to celebrate my newfound obsession, I have brought on the show today Rick Sellers. And Rick Sellers is one of the better beer minds I know. He's been a professional brewer. He's been a home brewer. And he now works for the Auburn Brewery in Auburn, California. He's also owned his own bar and been a bartender. So he knows his beer. He knows how to make it. He knows what sells. And he knows all kinds of intricate things about the topic. Now, we're not just going to talk about IPAs or pale ales or stouts and that sort of thing. This being the Hunt Gather Talk podcast, we are going to talk about wild beers. Wild beers have two meanings in the world, and one is wild fermentation. So in other words, putting a beer out and letting whatever happens, happens. And that's one piece of this. And the other piece to that is incorporating foraged ingredients into the beers that you make. What can you do to, say, substitute for hops or add different flavors to the beers that you want to do? And our conversation runs the whole gamut of that. Think of it as a starting point, as a, as a place to begin your own ideas on interesting and weird and unusual brews. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoyed recording it. Here we go. Hey, Rick. Welcome to Hunt, Gather, Talk. I am stoked to have you on the podcast today because as you and several of the people who have been reading Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook may be aware of, I have recently, finally, after years, decades really, pulled the trigger and have started to brew beer. That's not new for you, is it? Beer is new for me. Is it really? Um, it is. So I've done meads since college, which is now well, well over 20 years. And I've been making wines with either fruits or actual grapes for about the same period of time. So huh. you know, making alcohol is not new to me, but the actual I, this whole grain thing mm-hmm. and this whole hops thing, this one is I've, I'm shifting from drinker into brewer. I like it. I like it. <laughs> I try to put people on the podcast who know what they're doing, and I can think of no better person to talk to than you. If you read Duck Duck Goose. You may uh, know that you are actually mentioned Mm -hmm. in the beer and wine section of the beginning of that book as someone who I trust to know how to pair beers with foods. But you – I first – God, didn't we first meet when you were working for Imbibe? I was working for Draft Magazine, actually. Draft Magazine. That's So, um, yeah, I I was the beer director for Draft Magazine, which is a national publication, uh, high-gloss, celebrity interviews, but beer-focused. And yeah, that's where I met you. I was covering the uh, the national beer scene. Got to be back in two thousand seven, two thousand eight. That sounds about right. We met at the bar at Rubicon in downtown okay. Sacramento. I remember that. That's very cool. Yeah, I was. Uh, I mean, in the beer industry, I'm, and if people aren't familiar, the beer industry is just crazy right now. That's only eight years ago, nine years ago, and that seems like a that seems like a lifetime in the beer industry. We've come so far. But uh, yeah, it's been <laughs> what a ride. I've, I've been aware of and have been drinking something other than macro brews since the our late '80s. Mm-hmm. I mean, with Brooklyn Lager and Sam Adams and Anchor Steam and and stuff like that. But there was this huge explosion of craft beer in what seems like the early 2000s, and then it did it contract again and is now expanding again. The, you, you sort of give me the broad brushstrokes. Um, the modern history of what we call craft beer, it's just beer, but um, <laughs> it really began in 1965 when uh, Fritz Maytag took over Anchor Brewing Company. The uh, surge that you were talking about, the, the big boom, was actually in the 90s. Um, unfortunately, it was a boom and bust. Uh, we saw a lot of places opening. We saw a lot of people putting beer on shelves that was subpar. Um, when people realized there was money to be made... People came in for all the wrong reasons, all the wrong interests, and there was just a lot of bad beer in the market. And, you know, honestly, <laughs> you'd almost rather – you would definitely rather have uh, an industrial lager than a bad craft beer. So we, um, we suffered some setbacks in the 90s and then early 2000s, and uh, since probably 2004, 2005, 
we saw a bit of a resurgence. Um, then when the economy went south, we saw a lot of we saw some local contraction, especially. I mean, you you remember we lost eight breweries in a two year span from uh, 2005 2007. And that's just here in Sacramento. Just here in Sacramento. Um, so we got a little bit scared, and I don't think anybody. Well, we knew it was short term, but we I don't think anybody could predict where we are today with more than 4,000 craft breweries or small breweries uh, across the country and more than 500 just in California. we got 63 within 50 miles of the California state capital. It's, That's a lot. It's insane. Beer is not unique. Uh, people don't like hearing that in the beer world, but beer is not unique. You know, we've, we've kind of followed the path of coffee, um, better bread, better cheese. It's part of the bigger food movement mm-hmm. for sure. And so, I mean, you're working for Auburn Alehouse mm-hmm. right now, which is a uh, is a uh, brewery and brew pub up in Auburn, California, which is Gold Country. Correct. And as it happens, Gold Country is where I do a great deal of my foraging, and that's the topic I wanted to talk about today, which is not just craft beer, but the idea and sort of the theory and practice of, of two aspects of wild beers, one which would be the, the, the kind of the first thing that is getting me into brewing in the first place which is the addition of wild elements mm-hmm. to beer. So not just herbs, but spices and fruit and that sort of thing. And, and, and my mind has just been spinning over the last couple of months with the ideas of it. But the, the second piece to that is wild yeast. And you can make a you know, traditional or very untraditional beers by just sort of throwing it all out there and seeing what's going to happen. And, and uh, I want to talk about both of those mm-hmm. aspects of it. So let me start by saying I got into this largely because of um, two reasons. One, I hang out at a bar in Folsom, California called Sam Horns. And Sam Horns is like many bars all over the country and probably in Canada as well, in that it has lots and lots of beers that you've never heard of. And although it does tend to be something of an IPA bar, there's always the weirdos. Uh, <laughs> My the the they range from really fantastically interesting wonderful stuff to the Skittles and the Randall. Hey, <laughs> you were working there when this, they put the that, Skittles and the Randall. That was my idea. <laughs> so, oh, oh, I should now you, cut you off right now. <laughs> you uh, you missed the the worst one I ever did though, which was actually pretty fun. It was for uh, we had a local coffee shop or chocolate maker, the 50th anniversary. So I put waffle cones, chocolate. I soaked coffee beans and bourbon for a week and uh, dried orange peels. I stuffed them all into the Randall, and I put a chocolate stout through it. That just can't be good. <laughs> it was fun, though. <laughs> it looked terrible. So, so explain to people what a Randall is. For, if you a don't, Randall, a Randall's you're kind right. Of a you're right. It's a, it's, a, um, it's a flavor infusion contraption, and you put it between the keg and the tap, and you can stuff it full of ingredients. Um, traditionally, or not traditionally, it's a pr- fairly new contraption. People add hops to it to make your IPAs even more hoppy because we need that in life. But other people will, you know, you can play w- with anything. You know, I've put fruits in there. Um, I've used the hops. I've done a combination of fruit and hops. And, yeah, you get to play with coffee. I did. Uh, I soaked some oak cubes in bourbon for about six months and ran the ran that through there. So it's just a, it's an infusion contraption. It does not make beer better. It just makes beer different. And uh, it's just a fun toy to play with. One of the things about American craft beer is that there is a, a, a flexibility of ideas. And so you see different fruits and different this and different that. I mean, you go to any place that's a kind of a beer geek place and you'll find at least a couple of just weird-ass beers that can range from boneheaded to sublime. Mm-hmm. And the this sort of leads me to the the reason why I'm getting into this is the, a friend of mine named Pascal Baudar. He's a he's a Belgian who lives in Los Angeles County. He just put a book out called oh, it's it's a very long and difficult name. It's like cr- towards a more wild crafted terroir. I can't I can't remember the full name of the book. If you look up Pascal Baudar, and I'll put I'll put a link to the book in the notes. He has being a Belgian a huge brewing section on just strictly wild brews. Hmm. And it's it's fascinating stuff because he is only using things from Southern California, and he's actually not using malt. So they're not 
by strict definition, beers, because there's no hops and no malt. But they're, they're things that when you finish them, they taste remarkably like a beer, or depending on what you're, meat, what you're drinking, they'll taste remarkably like a cider. And the idea of capturing really aromas, it's mostly aromas that I'm just fascinated by, because I have been foraging for 40 years, and I know the fruits, I know the nuts, I know the herbs, I know all this sort of stuff, but there's this whole class of really herb, mostly green things that are hanging around mm-hmm. here that smell amazing, right? but they're bitter, I mean, they're just horrific. Or as bitter as me on a on a day when the Red Sox lose, you know. I oh mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just ah, oh, you know. So, and and here in the West we have all of these artemisias, and artemisia is sagebrush. It's not actual sage. We call it sage, but it's not like the garden sage, which is a salvia, and they just smell amazing. And and the one that's very local here in uh, it exists in Southern California, but the one that's most common up here is California mugwort. And California mugwort has an aroma not unlike hops, and it is every bit as bitter. Hmm. So Pascal uses it, and I thought I should use it because I, 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 I catch the idea, the idea before Pascal put his book out. And a friend of mine named Augie, who's an excellent home brewer down here, and he made a rye PA that we hopped. Well, he put some baseline hops in in the beginning of the boil, but for aroma – it was all mugwort, and it was an amazing beer. And I've been trying to recreate that, and, and Augie's going to make another batch. But I wanted to, the ability to be able, to be technically able to play with all of these new flavors myself. That, that's It's interesting because hops, hops are actually fairly new to beer, too. So, well, well, they've been around since 822. They, they, As a primary know, beer ingredient... I think they've, uh, they've well. I can I can go toe to toe on the history okay, with you on this one. Great, I'll trust you on <laughs> so that. So the the first the first reference to hopping beers is somewhere around eight twenty two, mm-hmm. and then there's uh, there are sporadic appearances of hops as one of many herbs, and this is where we're going to get into Gruet, right? Because that's that's sort of really the core of of the historical wild beer, mm-hmm. and. Hops, then, you know, there's that famous St. Bridget of whatever her name is in 1034. She mentions that it makes a good beer. And you start to get really serious hopped beers with the Hanseatic League in the, in the mid-1200s, and that's Bremen and Hamburg, the, the North German ports. And the only reason that hops won for them is because you can export it. And it's not that it was any better or, or less good than other beers. It's that you could throw it on a ship and it wouldn't go bad. Right. So there's all of this misinformation, um, or let me rephrase that. There's all of this supposition <laughs> that it was the Protestant Reformation that killed Gruet, and we'll get into exactly mm-hmm. what Gruet is in a minute, and that sort of, and that the Protestant sort of anti-drug kind of thing, because let's just stop for a second, because hops is a sedative. Correct. It was and easy. yes. Yeah, hot pillows. Mm-hmm. You can still buy hot pillows, and and you know anybody who's drank five bottles of uh, of craft beer, especially a triple IPA, will go to sleep. Mm-hmm. So the, the the Protestants all said, "Oh yeah, well you know we're gonna this is it makes people work better. It's calmer. It's not it's not like those crazy herbal beers that the Catholics are drinking." There's no evidence for this at all. None, zero. It all comes from one book. Really? It comes from a book called Sacred and Herbal Healing Beers by Stephen Herod Buner. Okay. And I've read every single one of his footnotes, and not one backs up his supposition. Hmm. Not one. And so everybody in the beer world, because they're not historians, just sort of take it. And they take that as uh, – because, because there are a lot of other reasons why that Sacred and Herbal Healing Beers is an excellent book, but this happens to not be one of them. And I looked and looked and looked for any kind of primary resource information about – you know, early Protestants, either Calvinists or, or Lutherans, saying, yes, hopped beer is better because of anything. It just happened to be that Martin Luther was drinking hopped beer in 1517. Well, 1517, shit, that's 250 years after the Germans started using hops. So I think on the beer geek side, I think the, the beer people, and you're right, were not historians. Uh, I think a lot of what we reference is the German purity law, the Rhine High School book, which actually just had its 500th anniversary two or three days ago. 
Yeah. Um, and that was, you know, and again, as a non-historian, I, the beer consumers, the beer geek crowd will say that's the first um, food standard or food law in the world history. And I, I, well, that sounds it, abs- it absolutely is not. I, not I, even by not even by six thousand years. I would I, again on the beer side. <laughs> <laughs> the Code of Hammurabi has beer standards. Hmm. Interesting. I shit you not. So the so the German purity <laughs> law just listed three ingredients. So you could only yeah. use water. Malt and hops. Right, um, they had to amend it. They had to amend it for yeast, and there was a push some time ago to make another amendment for CO2, because oh. if it's yeah, the uh, the purists, the, the really true purists, believe that forced carbonation is adding an ingredient to beer. So, and most commercial breweries these days force carbonate. So unless you have a naturally carbonated beer, um, you're adding something to it, and that didn't go very far, but. But you're right. There was uh, three ingredients, one amendment, and um, I think in the beer world, um, most beer people that I know have not read that book. I have a copy of that book, and I've, I've used a couple of recipes, but I don't think that's a reference point for almost anybody. <laughs> but I think what we look at is that, that, uh, that German purity law, and we just assume that that was uh, something, something more than it is, but – it's interesting. We can go down the rabbit hole. I mean, there. So let's let's start. Let's use it by talking about Gruet. So before hops became, they essentially won the herbal cage match mm-hmm. in, in beer additive. I mean, it's all hops is is an herb to to balance the sweetness of malt. Am right. I right? Yeah. It's um, what to get a um a sterile stable product. The beer is boiled, and mm-hmm. for a long time that was safer than water. Um, and in the boiling process, you can extract bitterness from hops through boiling. It's a water-soluble bitterness. And so the, um, the hops would basically be to used to balance the sweetness. And I can only imagine, and I obviously wasn't there, and there's probably better research than, than my remembering, um, I imagine the beers back then were under-attenuated, which means they're fairly sweet, and so to provide any sort of balance to it, you'd have to have something bitter. And I think hops were the most predictable, you know, resourceful ingredient they can do to just just boil it, get some bitterness, get some balance. Um, clearly, they were never used like we use them today. Uh, the whole idea of a late hopping, dry hopping, that's, that's fairly new. Um, but, yeah, just bitterness to balance the, the sweetness. And um, – there is evidence for that in the in my research is that um, they did heavily hop their beers to start with to figure it out, but they didn't do the dry hop or the light right. hop stuff. Oh yeah, that- and and um, hops essentially won is because it's it it seems and all the evidence that I can dig up suggests that it preserves beer the longest of all of the other potential herbal candidates. I've heard that. I've read that as well. Um, and there's some mythology in there as well. Um, the beer geeks like to say that the the style that's called IPA or India Pale Ale was created um, in England for shipment to India, and they had to add more hops to preserve as a preservation quality. That story is a complete myth, um, but it sounds good, and there's some truth that hops are a preservative. There's no doubt about it. It's a very good preservative, but um, don't uh, the 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 jumping point from that to that's what created the IPA is a little bit different. Well, what's interesting is I, I, we're sort of all we're, – we're getting around to the point of one of the reasons why what I'm interested, which is the wild additions to beers, um, is becoming more and more – it's a thing. Mm-hmm. I mean as I, as I do research, I see you know, Moonlight has one. Um, Dogfish Head does them, mm-hmm. and there's lots of breweries that, that do something like this. It's my impression, and you'll you'll know better than I will. It's my impression that so, to some of this is just quirkiness on the part of the master brewer, for sure. Correct. And then another piece to this is a search for interesting beers that are beyond the hop, because there are people who are like, "Oh, hops are so you know 2006." Correct. And, and no doubt about that. Um, and I. Beer drinkers are also cocktail drinkers, you know, by and large. You know, a lot of brewers, they like to um, 
you know, on the homebrew inside, even though home distillation is illegal, there's I've heard there's one or two people in the country that actually distill beer or distill liquor at home. Um, and there's a lot of things on that side that coincide with, you know, adding fun like indigenous ingredients to to your liquid, you know. And there's a lot of, you know, our bitters. You know, there's a bitters boom right now. Mm-hmm. Um, bitters very rarely use hops, and so a lot of I know a lot of home brewers that are looking at people that make, you know, small batches of bitters for cocktails. And they're using the same techniques and the same ingredients um, for really astounding results. You know, you there's um, a lot of barks, uh, some roots. Practically anything from conifers, you know, whether it's – I've seen everything from cedar to spruce to mm-hmm. fir to pine. Well, um, wormwood is popular. Um, yeah, and all of its cousins. So wormwood is an artemisia, like I was telling okay. you about that mugwort. Uh-huh. So all – it's funny you should mention this is because I, I lead foraging walks, and one of the – Groups that I take on walks every so often is a is a San Francisco cooking school, and in every group of students that come by, there's always at least a half a dozen who are interested in bitters. So I always show them things like uh, Monterey Monterey uh, um, Monterey uh, cedar and spruce cones, or yarrow, mm-hmm. or or there's a, there's another artemisia that lives on the sand dunes. I can't remember its Latin name, but it's 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 like a beach it's like a beach mugwort basically, and their their eyes all light up and and it just sort of recently occurred to me like hey just like what you're saying I could put that in a beer yes <laughs> yeah it's uh it's amazing and and where we live there's obviously a, a lot of local ingredients and I think nationwide there's probably something in people's backyard that we just overlook all the time and we're it's nice you know through works of people like you and some other people it's nice to see people getting out of the grocery store aisle you know and then it's the same thing with beer you know we we buy our hops through you know one or two distributors in the country and we all have the same access to the same ingredients and there's a sameness and a uniformity in a lot of american beer and if you step outside the grocery aisle so to speak and you just look around and you say well i want I want to bitter my beer, but I want to do something that is not what the guy across the street is doing. Or I just – I want to satisfy my own curiosity, and I think my customers will like it. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing. I, I, I'm actually surprised we don't see more of it right now because you're right. I can count on one hand the number of brewers, and I, uh, Moonlight's the number one that comes up that using ingredients he picks in his backyard basically, and he's making phenomenal beer. Yeah, his famous beer is called Working for Tips. And it has. Uh, he is the only person I know who uses redwood tips. Hmm. I mean, everybody, lots of spruce, lots of fir, lots of pine, uh, but but redwood. I, and so he, for some reason, I don't know why. I mean, shit, I'm a forager. I should know better. But I'm thinking, oh, redwood, redwood must be somehow different. And no, it's not. It's just another conifer. And, and if you like the smell and the and the and the flavor, which is citrusy, piney, when they're young, the reason why you use the tips is because when they're young and they're citrusy, piney. When they are a year or two or three or six years old, they're very turpentiney. So that's why you use the young tips. Hmm. I didn't know that actually. Yeah, and turpentine is not good eats. Hmm. That's what I've, I have heard that. <laughs> <laughs> huh. Um, so on your side, like, is there what are you finding locally? That you've mentioned the mugwort. Is there more out there? I assume. Well, it's practically everything. Okay. I mean, it's just my mind has just been going crazy. I mean, so. Everything from there, – there are a couple of varieties of what's called a California coffee berry, and it's, a, it's in the Ramnus, R-H-A-M-N-U-S. Uh, um, that's its family, and again, I'll, 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 everything that is sort of weird and esoteric I'll put notes to in the show notes on Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook. Uh, but this California coffee berry is, as you imagine, it's a berry, and then it has uh, not one but two large seeds inside – that you wash, dry, roast, grind, and it forms um, a drink very much like coffee, except it's a, it's a little bit sweeter. And why not put that in a porter or a stout? Hmm. I, I just made a wild ginger saison this morning. That sounds so good, by the way. <laughs> you should probably we'll tell see. the audience what's in there. but <laughs> uh, So it's... Uh, if, if saison is... Uh, it's a Belgian farmhouse-style beer. It's kind of an... 
it's fairly easy drinking. It, it needs to sit for a while. Yeah, I mean the yeast. Well, I was yeah. The saison yeast is the characteristic of saisons, and um, it needs a high temperature, um, extremely high temperature. If you're from the German um, brewing tradition, um, it's like it, over seventy, right? Yeah, it, it it does well up to ninety, ninety-one, ninety-two degrees. Is it really? It does. It thrives. And so the biggest the hell I'll put it in my garage. Yeah, the biggest problem with saison um, is the stuck fermentation, which is uh, you know it'll start to ferment and then it just stalls out. And the long fermentation time is what that is. It, it's it's a yeast that just isn't allowed to play and to consume like it wants to. But if you let it go and you let it do its thing, and if it's warm, um, they are actually fairly quick fermenting beers. You know we. I was a partner in a brewery called Odonata, and our flagship was Saison. And, uh, oh, that's right. I remember that beer. That was a great beer. A great beer. But yeah, that, was, um, that was a trick that we learned is uh, just let the yeast go. Let it do its thing. It's, it's a very hearty yeast. It, it, it can get too hot. Once it gets too hot, you're going to get a whole different and, and pretty negative flavor profile. But in those 80-degree um, range, it's a pretty happy yeast. It's going to throw off some esters. Um, you can get a nice um, pear note to it, some black pepper. Uh, it's very different than like a German Hefeweizen, which is like banana and clove. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a very fun yeast strain. But what you've done to it, I think, sounds fantastic. Yeah, I've got a couple of, uh, of dried rinds from the backyard lemon tree. Uh, I've got like eight cracked peppercorns. <laughs> uh, so very small amount. And uh, one ounce of chopped up wild ginger stems and leaves. Now, wild ginger, there's two kinds. There's one on the East Coast and one on the West Coast. And you use the stems and the leaves, and you can use what's called the stolon, which is kind of the runner in between um, plants, like a Mm -hmm. strawberry. Uh, You don't want to dig the plant up and use the rhizome. That would be a bad thing because, A, that kills the plant, and, B, it's not really that flavorful. So... Um, I have a whole article on doing wild ginger, which I'll, I, again, I'll post. I read that today, but, actually. But it's, it has a very oh, bright kind of – it smells kind of like ginger, but there's something else going on. And I put it in with one minute to go in the boil just so that I would hopefully capture some of that aroma. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Yeah, the later you put it in the, vo- in the boil, I mean at that point with a, such a small ingredient, it's good to sterilize the ingredient. And those oils tend to be very volatile, so they can steam off pretty quickly. And so a lot of that flavor and the, the aroma you want, if it's anything like other ingredients, a little bit longer than a couple of minutes, you're going to lose some a lot of that aroma you want. Yeah, so we'll see. I mean, it's that's why I'm doing one-gallon batches. And I, and I, I highly recommend, if you're going to start playing really weirdly, to do these one-gallon batches just because it's, you know, I mean – it's one thing to pour out eight bottles of beer. It's another to pour out five gallons. <laughs> yes, I've done both. <laughs> I'm throwing out bigger batches. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's just, oh, God, it makes you feel bad. Our first I mean, you can, always, you can always throw a vinegar mother in it, but how much vinegar do you need? You Correct. Know? I've actually never made vinegar. Huh. Um, but, yeah, that's – I'm very curious to see where you take this because the – on the beer community, in the beer world side, when somebody hears the word wild ale or wild beer, we always think of lambics and we always think of the spontaneous fermentation. Ah, um, the yeast. The yeast. And it's – which is beautiful. And I, I, there's not a lot of successful spontaneously fermented beers in the country. Um, I know Allagash has a, a nice little program. Russian River mm-hmm. does a couple of beers that are actually spontaneously fermented. Um, but really, the, that's that's what we focus on. We hear the word wild beer, but it, well, let's talk about. It. So for a sec, yeah. so all beer is going to ferment. Correct. Like I don't care what your beer is. If you throw a, your, you know your sweet sticky wort, the, you know the grain juice out there, something's going to jump on it and ferment it. Correct. The uh, so so you talk to the foraging community and they're just like ah, just let it go. And you talk to the beer community, and, you say, and they say, this is one of the hardest things to do. And, and so walk me through I, – I don't understand. You know, is it, It's going to go, but what are you looking for, and, and is there any way to say, hey, I want to make a wild ale 
that has you know, wild fermentation. Is there anything that you can do to to help your cause? Um, the, the in the Belgian tradition, they have what's called a cool ship, and it's a shallow, long and narrow or long and wide vessel, and they allow the the beer to cool basically overnight. So they brew the beer during the day, and overnight they put it in the cool ships, and they let the the air do its thing. And it's cool out when they do it, It right? is cool out. And the one thing about the Zen Valley is there's a lot of orchards in the area, a lot of fruit trees, um, and a lot of good bacteria, uh, a lot of good yeast out there that, are, that produce some really wonderful flavors. Um, they have scary names like... Uh, Streptococcus and some other um, really funky ones, but you know they're they are natural. They're they're just there. And sure. Let me let me let me give the listeners a, an idea. So if you've ever seen plums or grapes or juniper berries, that that whitish bloom that's on the outside of that fruit, that's what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. That is a manifestation of that yeast. Correct. And um, and it's it's interesting because a lot of They've done a lot of studies, geez, over probably the last 15, 20 years, um, even before sour beers got really popular like they are today. Um, and one study, they found that there was over 1,300 unique bacteria and over 800 uh, unique yeast varieties in a spontaneously fermented beer, the ones out hmm. of Belgium. And these are, again, those, what we do – commercially in America and what homebrewers try and do for the most part is you want a controlled fermentation. We want to isolate yeast strains that have a predictable outcome. And it becomes really hard to predict the outcome if you're going to put something in your backyard and just let it go. Because your backyard is not going to be the same as the Zen Valley. And it's um, it's interesting. When you, when you consider that many bacteria and yeast Varieties that just exist naturally in the world, in one place. It, it's impossible to to replicate it. It's really I mean, it's can't. the true sense of it's terroir. Yes, oh, absolutely. That's probably why that West, you know, beers like that Westie uh, are so highly regarded. A Westie is well, that's that. There's nothing wild about that, it, and that's that's true. That's an Abbey Ale. It's an Abbey Ale, and it's a that's a scarcity issue, but. It's a great beer, don't get me wrong, but when it was named one of the best beer, the best beer in the world years ago, um, the Abbey at Sixtus is where it's made. Uh, they, they, weren't, they weren't ready for how many people wanted – the social media thing is so new to a lot of people, but probably no – I mean they're monks after Exactly. <laughs> the monks completely unprepared for what social media could do. So um, people would go there and – Lie, cheat, and steal to get more beer than was allocated, and doesn't that seem to be especially wrong to cheat a monk? Yeah, so that's 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 different on on the sour side. You know, it's it is terroir. It is it is something that is unique to your own place, and I don't. There's no harm in trying it. You know, wherever you are, it's especially if you back up to a uh, an orchard. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be fun, and it might not be good. And here's the other thing on sour beers. They're spontaneous, spontaneously fermented. They don't happen quickly. So when you isolate a yeast strain, we can, we can do an ale in a few weeks. You know, we can do a lager in a month and a half. A good sour, like the ones out of the Zen Valley, you're looking at a couple of years. It's a commitment. And it's, um, they're going to go through periods of sickness. They're going to go through periods where um, the liquid looks disgusting it looks like snot and <laughs> it gets ropey it, it's it's terrible uh i mean the taste good you have to get past what it looks like but it will progress past that and so on the homebrewer level there's a lot of people that they might have something good going on and they might taste it and it not might it might not be what they want and so they toss it um these projects if you're doing a spontaneously this kind of wild beer it's going to take some time, a minimum year and a half, um, two years, two and a half years. It, it, it can really get up there, and um, it's just the yeast and the bacteria doing its thing. Unlike, but on the other hand, what? I mean I can, I can throw out like, – because I've done this many times with fruit juices before. I can throw a fruit juice out there, and it's going to ferment and kick out in two weeks. Mm-hmm. 
and then you can do whatever you want with it. I mean, what's to say you can't do that with a beer? Well, I mean, you're developing flavors, so the beer's going to stop fermenting fairly quickly, but the bacteria is still going to work in there in a way that you're not producing more alcohol. Um, you're, you're, you're taming your flavors. You know, I, I had an accidental sour beer once. Um, I did fresh raspberries and a porter, and I tasted it. It was terrible. So unfortunately, I had bottled like five cases. And um, <laughs> my secret – I can't, I can't even imagine. <laughs> my secret is I'm really lazy, and so I kept it in my closet um, for well over a year. And so finally one day, I'm like, all right, it's time for these bottles to go. And I opened one up, and it wasn't terrible. And I, I can't explain what happens, but the fermentation is the first part. The complexity develops, and you're going to get emails on this because I'm, I'm clearly there's, – there's a scientific, biological answer for your question. I don't understand it, but it does take a long time to develop those flavors that we really love and enjoy. Um, and in America, if, if you want those flavors and you want them predictable, you can buy yeast slants now and from uh, White Labs and um, Y right. Yeast. Um, have a lot of the you same can, characters. You can pitch bread, mm-hmm. you know, Britannomyas. Yeah. Now, I, I happen to know that my little neighborhood here in Orangevale is loaded with it because uh, – with Britannomyas. Mm-hmm. Now, this is another yeast, if you are not familiar with it, uh, and it is the yeast that makes – Wine smell like horses. Horse blanket. And if you, yeah, if you've ever had weird, like, huh, uh, that's interesting kind of home wine, it's normally because it got hit with breath. Mm-hmm. Now, there, there's an Italian family who lived right next to me, and they have five acres, and it's all full of orchards. And they, he pitch, he makes wine from his backyard grapes every year, and never throws yeast, and he puts it in the same barrel every year. And some years it's great. And some years it's loaded with Brett, and you know. <laughs> and winemakers don't like Brett. Oh no, it's terrible! <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible. There's nothing you could do about it. <laughs> wow. Huh. So I might try it once the weather cools. I might give it a go. I know there's, there's so many ways to do it, and if people are on social media and they they watch beer news at all, there's there's been a couple attempts in the last five or six years to do crazy, stupid stuff. And it's gimmicky, and I'll, I'll just preface that, and I don't like it, but there is yeast everywhere. You know, Rogue did the, the uh, John Mayer's, their brewmaster, they took, uh, they isolated yeast from his beard, and they made a beer from it. Commercial, by the way, they oh, sold us nationwide. Oh the beard beer. Um, there's a, there was a home brewer down in L.A., San Diego area, back 07, 06. She made a sour beer from her own vaginal fluid, which is oh, that's just no. I mean, oh. think about it. <laughs> that's the that's lactobacillus, and yeah, it's it's it it's terrible. But she knew what she was doing. It's lactobacillus. Lactobacillus is in our saliva. It's in bodily fluids. Mm, I can't eat that. <laughs> I agree, it's terrible. But I mean, it, there's gimmicks everywhere, and there's yeast. Everywhere, and there's a, well. What I'm saying is not so much to culture some freaky yeast, but just to let things go. Exactly. No, it, it is everywhere, and it's some things probably work out pretty well. And if, you know, when in doubt, you can throw a uh, you can throw a vinegar mother on it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so let's talk about Gruit. Mm-hmm. So we kind of alluded to it maybe ten twenty minutes ago. Is that, so Gruit. Is defined as a mixture of herbs that was put in beers and in, in, from the Dark Ages until Hops won the cage mm-hmm. match. And the only thing that we know for sure that was in this mixture of medieval, you know, bittering herbs was bog myrtle, which is Myrica Gale. Everything else is supposition. And it, but it was a con- it was a concoction. It was a it was a mixture that was controlled heavily by government authorities. And sometimes a church and sometimes uh, secular authorities, but it was this mix, and it was and it changed from you know brewer to brewer, country to country, time to time. That was what was used in in beers prior to the ascendancy of the hops, and sometimes actually hops were included in the gruet mm-hmm. herbs. They just weren't the dominant thing. So you're now seeing gruets reappear, and 
I'm wondering what is your as a drinker, what's your experience been with the ones that you've had? I've had a handful. I've had both commercial and homebrew versions. Um, they are if if your palate is geared towards a hoppy beer, um, your initial impression is it's not going to be good. But if you get past the expectation that you're looking, if you're just looking for a hop flavor, um, a lot of these recipes don't necessarily give you like the Cascade hops or the Simcoe. They are different. So once you get past that, if if the beer was allowed to attenuate, which is to dry out, um, if it was a clean fermentation, so with little off flavors, they're actually really good. Um, like we were saying earlier, there's there's a bitterness factor you're getting from the herbs or the roots or the bark that you're using, and there's also a lot of flavors you could put in there. Um, you got, and again, I don't know the historic recipes, but I've seen the use of ginger. Um, I've seen a lot of black pepper. There's, it's fun, and so if you if you go into it without the expectation of of your hop forward beers that we're used to. They're actually pretty good, and you, there is a process you have to be good at. You have to have the ability to make a good good mash, um, which is the process of turning your starches into sugars um, from your grains, and that's that's a temperature hold, um, water pH. There, there's there's a few things in there that are that'll help you as a home brewer, or if you don't want to do that, you can buy malted extract. Um, it's I'm I'm kind of doing both at this point. Yeah, I'm, I'm, and there's nothing wrong with malt extract. Um, it, it had a bad rep for a while, but it's the quality is is right there, and it saves you so much time. Um, you still have to boil the liquid uh, just for a sterilization, and you know that you just want to. Um, but beyond that, the longer you like, if you have a malt extract or a whatever beer you're doing, if you have a direct fire boil, um, I think my favorite was a riff on a Scottish ale. And they boiled it on direct fire for four hours to get wow. kettle caramelization. And you could watch the liquid get darker and darker. And it was caramelizing. It was beautiful. And then they didn't add hops to it. I forget exactly. There was a handful. I bet they added heather. Actually, you're probably right. <laughs> that's, that's a thing. You could still buy heather oh, yeah. ale in Scotland. Yeah, heather flowers are everywhere. Um, All right, I'm about to blow your mind. Go ahead. Do you know what the, the a acceptable substitute for heather is? Scotch broom. Really? Yeah. For those of you who live in the West, um, especially California, Scotch broom is a pernicious invasive weed that everybody who lives in California wants to eliminate completely because it burns our houses down. I, it, it's evil. It is evil. And the thing that they use for it, oh my goodness, Isn't that great? That's terrible. <laughs> But no, I'm totally doing that. I was driving by, I was driving down the the road yesterday. I'm like, huh, Scotch broom. I'm totally going to do, and it's you know pretty yellow flowers. Yeah, it's, and, yeah, it's nice. So you just can't. Go you use, it. you use the young tips. Okay. Um, but yeah, back to your question. I've, I've had some. The, the biggest issue on is on quality is not necessarily ingredients. It's just how do you handle the beer? You know, does do you allow the yeast? Do you allow the fermentation to be clean? Which is at a more controlled temperature. Uh, I know we'd already talked about um, saisons, and that's a whole different ball game. Most beers need to be, you know, some temperature control. It's not rigid like the Germans. Um, German tradition says you, you it's a pretty rigid standard. Um, we're allowed some play in that, but if the beer is allowed to, cur- to ferment pretty clean, Gruitz and I guess what you refer to as you know indigenous beers, they're really good, and they, the only fly I ever see is the ones that uh, they didn't finish out, they didn't attenuate, um, and so there was a really low alcohol level and a ton of sweetness, and those are just not palatable for anybody. It's it's syrupy, it's sticky, it's heavy. They might be fun, but you can't do more than half a pint. Yeah, yep. That's so. Uh, I mean, basically, the the flaw in the initial design of the beer. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, heck, go for it. And you know, that's at at a home level. There's really cheap equipment. I mean, for with the size you're doing at at home, Hank, it's a gallon size. You got the pot. You don't need any specialty mm-hmm. uh, tools. 
the one thing I'd recommend for anybody is a hydrometer, and that will measure your original gravity or how much sugar is in the beer initially. And you can take measurements to see how much of the sugar is eaten by the yeast uh, during fermentation. And the lower the, the number gets, the drier the beer is going to be. And um, I would kind of let that be your guide. You know, it's in the 80s and 90s and way earlier than that. Um, the rule of thumb is when the beer stops bubbling, you're probably good to go. And it's a good rule of thumb, but it's it's also – it doesn't tell you anything. So if you want more consistency, just buy a hydrometer. They're less than $10. Um, and that could – be the only specialty piece of equipment you need for a really small batch of beer. Um, and why wouldn't you do it? I think about doing that for Thanksgiving. That'd be amazing. Yeah. I, it's the checking the, um, the bricks ratings, you know, right. every, every, everybody's alcohol is measured in sugar in a different way. Mm-hmm. It's original gravity and beer, mm-hmm. uh, and it's bricks and wine, but it's the same. If you buy a triple scale hydro, uh, hygrometer, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. And, I would always check the uh, the levels in my um, in my wines, and I haven't with beers yet because it's just such low alcohol things. It just I'm, I'm used to making wines that are 13 to 15 percent alcohol, and it takes you know two three weeks to get down there. But you know we're talking about something with five or six. The you know, the only trouble gets on that is if you're going to package it, if you're going to put it in a bottle that's sealed, and there's mm-hmm. and there's too much sugar in there and it's still fermenting, those bottles will blow up, and that's a dangerous thing i've I've had that happen mm-hmm. and so yeah it's it depends on what your end product's going to be if you're going to serve it from a jug you know or, or whatever that's completely fine but once you put it into a sealed vessel you will really want to make sure those sugars are non-existent mm, good to know yeah bottle bombs <laughs> are scary um god they're scary <laughs> I've been using um, I've been using the Grolsch style bottles. Those uh-huh. are allegedly they help you uh, not uh, explode. I don't know if that's true or nope. not. <laughs> not true at all. <laughs> Damn. Um, no, I mean it's a sealed vessel, so you're just gonna if you build up enough pressure. And the bottles we have today are better than they used to be. There are different ratings for different bottles, and your your Belgian style beers that have a more effervescent quality to them like your Saisons or some of your triples, they need like a thicker glass wall. And it's all measured in volumes of CO2. So if, if you just look at your ratings, you could find the right bottle for whatever you're doing. And the Grolsch bottles, and again, like you're saying, if it's going to be a quick turnaround, if you just want a slight carbonation, um, if it's not going to sit there for over a week, you're probably fine. But hmm. um, don't forget about them. That's I came home one day and I forgot about some beer and – I had shards of glass that were embedded into my wall, and Whoa. it scared the crap out of me because I was just careless. So you don't want to do that, especially at home in the room that you're going to be in all the time. So Good to know. Yeah. When, uh, if you put it at lower temperature, doesn't that slow everything down? It does, of course. Yeah, if you um, – but yeah, it's, it's going to slow it down, and you're also going to slow down your rate of carbonation. So if your goal is to carbonate a beer quickly, you know, cooling it down is – is going to take that away. So good to know. There's always pluses and minuses. Well, that's the thing. I mean, go back, going back to Gruit, mm-hmm. there is some significant evidence that the the buzz you get from a traditional Gruit is very different from a from a hop fueled buzz. Yarrow and certainly Labrador tea, which is another uh, another Gruit herb that is commonly mentioned, and various other things are. I don't know about psychotropic and a kind of a medicinal and a, they're not like a pharmaceutical psychotropic, mm-hmm. but they're absolutely a different. They affect you differently. And that's what um, they used to say about absinthe back before we figured out how to use wormwood. Well, absinthe's primary ingredient is wormwood, Correct. and the, the ingredient in wormwood is dujone. Okay. And I what I've read is there was before that we we really understood what the hell we were doing. It was easy to overuse that. And that, right. that could uh, cause some some interesting side effects that might seem like you're drunk or high or something, but it also could be – it's a neurotoxin, right? Mild, Yeah, but yes. But if – yeah, it's, so when you overdo it, it's just overdoing it. Yeah, the um, wormwood is known as dreamweed, the California wormwood. 
Um, and so the Indians would, would uh, either smoke it or put it under their pillows or, or take it in other ways to promote vivid dreams. And anecdotally, I can tell you that that actually works. Hmm. Interesting. So, I mean, it's, one of the, that is an interesting thing about these wild beers is that you can, you know, if you know your stuff, you can create different effects. Now, there is, a, there is the infamous Henbane beer. Um, now, Henbane is not quite as lethal as something like uh, Jimson Weed, but it is close. So, you know, you have these mystical beers that are like, oh, yes, it'll send you to the astral plane. Well, you know, maybe in the hands of an extraordinarily, extraordinarily skillful herbalist, but in the hands of a home brewer, you're just as likely to send yourself to the hospital. So my second, the second safety tip for, the, for today's <laughs> podcast would be, Know what the hell you're putting in the beer. <laughs> That's a good tip in life. Because <laughs> there's a lot of things that um, that inter- you know. So yarrow in and of itself is not known to be psychotropic at all, but there is some evidence, anecdotal, albeit, but significant anecdotal evidence that when yarrow meets alcohol, something different happens. Interesting. So it's not just the one thing. Like I'm just right. I, uh, I'm writing about uh, Brackenfern right now and. And there's this element in it called um, talquilicide, which is – they used to think that that was the carcinogen, mm-hmm. but it's not. It's actually – it's a precursor that when exposed to an alkaline environment, it triggers this other substance called dianone, which is – which that is the carcinogen. So, is this an update and, to something you've already written? It is. Okay. And so I just read that it piece. Is, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an update on okay. it. And it's one of those things where – well, you know, who knows what happens with this with this experiment that you're going to do when you when you make it interact with alcohol. Right. But that's also what makes it very fun. We don't know what was in Gruet. We have some ideas, but that allows you, the brewer, to mess around with it. My first version of Gruet, I went overboard on the herbs, mm-hmm. and this is another tip. Um, less is more. Mm-hmm. It just was impossibly bitter. That was my first batch of uh, homemade root beer. I tried to do it from like uh, using raw ingredients, and I was I I love a good root beer, so I added probably I almost probably doubled up my ingredients what they called for, thinking it would be better. <laughs> it's terrible. Yeah, it was a drain pour. The whole batch had to go away. So I haven't tossed this first batch because bitterness can mellow over time, mm-hmm. and I let that thing ferment for ten days, and we'll see. Um, Maybe it'll mellow. Maybe it won't. Maybe you know, I'll go back soon. It could be like your porter with the raspberries. I, I could come back a year later, and it could be wonderful. And if, or it could just suck. If it's a bitterness issue, you can all, always blend it together with a less bitter concoction as well. So if you make a second batch and under-bitter it, you know, blend it together, There's there are ways if, – if bitterness is the only technical flaw, you, know, you don't have to necessarily pitch it. Um, you can blend it together with something a little bit sweeter. Um, sure. There's, there's ways around that. Again, this is you know back to the one gallon exactly. batches. Like, eh, it's April's. You know, <laughs> you don't have to get all creative. Like, oh god, what did you say? Well, how many cases? <laughs> I, I, oh shoot, that was just five cases. Five cases? Like, ugh, uh, I just can't. That's a lot of beer. Oh, I, I might have tossed twelve pallets of beer at one point. Ah, <laughs> uh, is it the Odnata? Yeah, Odnata's very very first batch had to be poured. So Not it didn't good. carbonate. So we bottled it. We tried to do bottle conditioning. It just didn't work out. Yeah, that's what I've been doing is bottle <laughs> conditioning. So bottle conditioning, for those of you who don't know, is uh, you add a little bit of fermentable sugar to the to the um, the bottles, and then you cap it. Right. That's the Krausity method. So, yeah, there's like fresh yeast and fresh sugar, like a fresh beer basically, a small amount of that. Or you can – if you're using a hydrometer at home, you can get to a certain point you want and uh, – just cap it at that point, and it'll it'll continue to ferment in the bottle. Ah, okay. So there's two ways to do it. You can you can add more sweetness to it, or just bottle before it's done. And uh, and again, be careful on that one because you it'll finish fermenting one way or the other. So. <laughs> well, I uh, I use those little tablets. There's a, they make very those sort of sugar, I've seen those. Sugar, I've never used essentially them. sugar sugar pills, mm-hmm. and you add. You add, you know, a very specific amount of sugar to each bottle so that you don't like, oh, yeah, that'll be fine. And then, you know, you've added too much sugar, and then that gives the yeast too much to eat, and then it blows yeah, up the bottle. I've never used those. I've seen them. 
I hear they work great. So what else do you find up here in California, at least? Because there's, I mean, it, the, the possibilities are endless. Is I it? mentioned the coffee berry. Yeah. I mentioned the herbs, and and I think you know you have the different categories of stuff. You know, you have wild fruits mm-hmm. for sure. Use any wild fruit you feel like. Um, I'm I'm thinking about the idea. I have some yellow wild plums that live around the house, and I'm thinking to maybe make a Berliner Weiss that has the yellow plums in it. Who knows? Or maybe some sort of a another saison. Then you know any kind of elder. Like, I'm actually going to do an elderflower champagne that has no malt in it at all, where I'm going to elderflowers. I don't know if you know are coated in their own yeast, so they'll go all by themselves. And so I made some. I have some leftover elderflower syrup from last year, so I'm just going to you know dilute that out until I get it to the the uh, original gravity that I want. Pack of uh, an open fermenter full of elderflowers, pour that over it, and just see what happens. Hmm. Why, the heck? why not? Yeah, why not? <laughs> and you see that one, I'm going to probably kick up to about 10, 12% alcohol and then let, let that ferment out mm-hmm. and then um, prime, prime the bottles because I want that to be sparkling. Nice. A trendy thing right now, it could be fun to play with at home. We've uh, we see a lot of that grapefruit sculpin and grapefruit IPAs across the board. They're still using ho- a lot of hops in it, but I, it might be fun if you're in an area that has a lot of citrus trees. Um, citrus peel would be fun too, like without hops. I don't know if it would bitter it enough. You don't think so? So I can tell you that the combination of mugwort <laughs> and citrus is a wonderful one. Okay. Uh, Pascal actually, that's his basic uh, brew recipe: is mugwort and lemon rind and brown sugar. Hmm. And it's it ferments out. It looks uh, it looks a little bit like Allagash White, okay. sort of a Belgian white. And I just opened a, the first bottle yesterday. It's uh, I believe the beer is maybe two three weeks old, and it has a very slight carbonation to it. It's extremely slight, but I only added two grams of sugar to each bottle. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it'll get more carbonated over time, but. Um, it's just a little prickly at this point, as opposed to like actually carbonated. If you know what I yep. mean. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> but that is a that's a great flavor combination. So that could work. Did you ever read a book from um, Parsons? Parsons, shoot, uh, it was the, the book on bitters, um, how to make bitters at home, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I think that won all kinds of awards. No, because I don't. I actually don't drink cocktails. So, so my idea of a cocktail is putting ice in my whiskey. The, good, <laughs> as it should be. Um, he has a section in the book that lists all the various bittering ingredients that um, bitters makers have used over over time. And I wish I had the book in front of me because a lot of them are just roots, barks, flowers, things that I think a lot of your listeners would have access to. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the drunken botanist is another good book for that. Oh, really? I haven't heard that one. That's a fun one. I'll have to write that down, actually. Drunken botanist. Uh huh. I I, the, I read a lot about esen- alcohol. Essentially, just think. I mean, I think that the takeaway is think, right? Mm-hmm. So, what's edible? What does it smell like? What does it taste like? Is it bitter? And then think about existing beer styles, and then start there. Mm-hmm. That's that's how I'm approaching this. So. I wouldn't necessarily put that California coffee berry in a light beer because it would just it would be weird. Right. But there there already exists coffee stouts and coffee porters, and it just seems more natural that way. I mean, maybe I could use a, a Scottish ale as a base and then go from there. But it, it needed to be so it, it needs to go with something malty, right? Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, a saison you're thinking fruity, you're thinking lighter. Mm-hmm. You know, you wouldn't want to put. You know, it's a whole different set of ingredients, and then an IPA is a whole different thing. So, I actually my gruits. The what I'm striving for is to create a California native gruit, a, co- a concoction of native herbs that will create something that is as enjoyable and a similar flavor profile as an IPA. So very different from your experiences with gruits. Mm-hmm. So kind of a uh, a amber to pale beer that has the floral, the citrus, the pine, the bitter. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And you could almost get more. Just thinking about this, and you might know more. You, you might be doing this, but adding flowers, even like rose petals or something later in the mix, like after after the boil while it's fermenting, 
Right. Could get you even more aromatic qualities. I did that with that horribly bitter Gruet okay. 1.0. Um, I threw some fresh mugwort in there, and I did get great aroma, mm-hmm. uh, but it was so bitter, I was like, ugh. So the 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 concept is sound, but I just need to fix. You right. see, all my problems are technical at this point, okay. and that'll just I'll just fix that with time. Um, there's a gentleman in San Francisco. He opened a, br- a brewery called uh, Almanac, and he does some really interesting ingredients. He he does a lot of lo- locally sourced fruits for his uh, his beer, and if I remember right, he actually used some Pacific seawater to make a goza, and a goza is a salty German-style beer. Um, I love those beers. Do you? <laughs> mm-hmm. They uh, they're they've changed a lot. They they were originally supposed to be more salty, and now they're more sour, and they're fine. They're they're great. Uh, the interpretation has changed just quickly, but um. Hmm. I like it as a hot weather beer. Even stuff like that, just adding – if you live by the ocean, just add some salt water. That'd be fun. Provided you boil it. Of course. Oh, they have to, yeah. That's <laughs> always boil your beer. Mmm, <laughs> dinoflagellates in the uh, beer. Always <laughs> boil. Always, always boil. <laughs> um, and so do you still homebrew? I do. So, I mean, all right. We've now been talking about this for an hour. Yeah. Um, have I lit any sparks in your head? You have. I, I, I'm going to – I make my own bitters at home as well. Uh, I make a lot of bitters. So I would actually like to marry those two projects together. I am not a forager for uh, anything except for morel mushrooms at this point. i gotta, I got to change that. But uh, my local little health nut store has a lot of the uh, ingredients that I use in bitters. And it would be fun. Just to do, I wouldn't do – I have a three-tier, 15-gallon system at home that – I wouldn't use for that, but for stovetop recipes, absolutely. And it's amazing, even on the bitter side. We, I had a buddy that had a, a kumquat tree two years ago. It gave me a bunch of kumquats, and I just soaked them in high-proof vodka, added some herbs and some spices to it, and it was fantastic. So, and kumquats are fairly bitter. Although you can't eat them out of hand if you wanted to. What's that? So although you can't eat them out of hand, oh yeah, if you I, to. we we were given a lot. So <laughs> I had a I have an idea. I had a, yeah. I have an idea for us to rejoin on the podcast yeah. next week or ne- not next week, right. but an idea to join on the podcast later. Let's go up because the spruce and the fur tips are just about to hit. Okay. Let's go up and get a whole bunch, and then play around with that idea as a beer because I think of all of the wild beers that you will see on the market all over the country, and I know there's at least a dozen commercial breweries that are using spruce or fir tips mm-hmm. in their beers. Let's play with it. Yeah, that's easy. I mean, it's it, it's the closest thing to hops as you're going to get that's not hops. It's the it's Some of them are almost identical flavor profile, and they're just not quite as um, baseline bitter. Right. And, and, and it's it's in season right now. Nice. Um, and and hops is a very generic thing, too, because there's, there's a, a flavor for everything in hops. But that'd be fun. Yeah, yeah. let's do it. And by the way, we can always look for mushrooms as well. I like it. <laughs> I like it a lot. <laughs> well, all right, Rick. We've been talking for over an hour. That's what I hear. And so I'm cognizant of your time, my time, and the listeners' time. So I, I really appreciate you being on yeah, but, uh, the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. Yep. I uh, I appreciate this too. It's it's. I've been thinking a lot while you talk, and it's so there's a lot of delay that it's just I. Uh, it is interesting. Wheels turning. There's wheels turning, <laughs> and it's. In general, I, I think what I like – it was the epiphany I had the last time I, I talked to you was when you mentioned wild ales or wild beers, as we mentioned earlier, I, I only thought of spontaneous fermentation. And it's, it's intriguing to say the least that we can redefine like as a, as a small subculture of our society what wild means, and especially in the beer scene. It would be – Especially in this area, the, the West Coast is just there's everything's edible. It seems like, and that's not true. I know that's not true, um, <laughs> but there's a lot. <laughs> there's so much good food, fruits, vegetables, everything that just just grows out there. So I like it. I like the idea of wild being something more than just spontaneous fermentation. That's that's the Oop. point. We will make it so. Okay. Take it easy, Rick. I'll talk to you soon. I'll buy you a beer. Well, that's our show. Thanks for hanging around with me. I'm Hank Shaw, the host of the Hunt Gather Talk podcast of 
Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook, which is where you will find all of the show notes for today's episode. If you are not familiar with Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook, it is honest-food.net. It is the internet's largest source of wild food recipes, techniques, and foraging resources. I hope you visit it when you get a chance, and I hope you tune in again next time. Thanks a lot, and take it easy. <laughs>